This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. All right, amen. Hey, go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, everybody. Man, I'm looking. Hey, you guys, you made it out even in the rain. Well done. Well done. I'm so proud to be part of this church. Welcome to New Life. Glad you're here. Hey, Monica Hunt, happy birthday. Happy to see you today. Uh, boy, if you guys don't know Monica Hunt, she's one of the founders of our church. She picked up her family from Hawaii to hear God's call to move them to Northern California to launch this church, and she is someone worthy of celebrating. So happy birthday, Monica. We love you. Um, if that wasn't enough, she said to me on Friday, Kevin, you should have had us vote about your beard because I think you look, and she said, these are her exact words, you look at least three times better with a beard. And I said, well... Amen. Hey, you can stay. You can stay as long as you want, Monica Hunt. I love you. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, hey, I'm just so thankful to be sharing some time with you. You're going to want to get your teaching notes ready, get the Start Here card ready as we dive in. We've got so much to do today, but I want to I want to take us back to something we talked about a few months ago. We talked about becoming uh, extremely and exceedingly generous people. Remember, we talked about. Uh, generosity in terms of resources is the designated um, emancipation of personal assets for the betterment of other people as a way to love God by loving people. And we have heard that call and we are becoming incredibly generous as a church community. And because of that, uh, I'm just so thankful. I was thinking about this week. What other organization has a week like we had this week? On Wednesday night, because of your generosity, we housed a number of people who would otherwise be living on the streets through our nomadic shelter here on Wednesday night. That was so fun. Because of your generosity, we can have this space and do that. And then on Thursday night, we had a group from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, the college ministry that we support. They were supposed to go to the corn maze, but it was pouring down rain. So we said, hey, come on over and use our building. And they had a huge evening here. And I talked to the students on Friday who were here for our worship night. And they said, Kevin, it was, it was one of the best nights we've had all year to be able to be here and celebrate. And they said, we've never, we didn't have a youth room like that at our church. That youth room is amazing. And so because of your generosity, we could welcome and house a group of college students on a rainy night. I love that. I love that. And then, yeah, it's so fun. Friday night, we had our worship night, and a couple hundred of us gathered together to worship. Because of the generosity of this church, we have a space to come and and worship the Lord together as a community. It's just so fun to be part of this church. And one of the things I said to you at the end of our generosity series was, we're going to give you opportunities to simply practice this skill of generosity for the next couple months, just to practice the skill. It's not a hard sell. It's not a, hey, now you have to do this. Now you have to do that. Just simply a way to practice. So one of the ways we practiced was through our, uh, our experiment with How to Neighbor was giving to our global outreach ministries. And another $1,000 came in this week. So we're up to like 18800 and some dollars in partnering with Global Outreach for 2017, which is awesome. I love it. I love it. But then one of the things we wanted to do next is just giving us opportunities to practice generosity in this holiday season through our season of giving. And so when you came in, you, re- you should have seen one of these on the seat in front of you. Go ahead and grab that. Um, it just is simply ways to partner with organizations this holiday season. Because many of us, when it comes to Thanksgiving and Christmas, we just love being 
generous people. And so we, we've identified a handful, one, two, three, four, five ways that we could, if you wanted to, just pick one of these. These are organizations that we love, that we trust, that you might want to partner with. Not all five, but maybe one as a family or, or one as an individual or as a house. One or two of these, and then just partner over this holiday season. And uh, you probably saw all of our partners out in the lobby, but I want to highlight these just for a second so you can take a look at it. We have things like the Two-Ton Turkey Challenge, where we partner with the Redwood Gospel Mission for their great Thanksgiving banquet. And we started our first time years and years ago with 50 turkeys. And I think we had something like over 4,500 pounds. Is that right? 4,500 pounds of turkey this last year. That's a lot of turkey. Insert insert husband joke there, okay? That's where you insert the husband joke every year, which I just decided not to do this year. Um, but our great Thanksgiving, our two-ton turkey challenge is here. You could do that. You bring your turkeys. It's so fun. We, we fill up our, um, our, our lobby with turkeys. We have change for children, which is partnering with the orphanage in India. And you could just grab one of our jars and take it home and spare change. You just put it in there for the next handful of weeks and bring it in and, and partner with orphans in India on this holiday season. Uh, we've got Operation Christmas Child, which gets a present into the hands of people all around the world, while at the same time reminding them about a Jesus who loves them deeply. You maybe want to do that. Uh, on the back, we've got Pioneer Bible Translators. For $38, you can support a missionary who is learning an uncharted language, who is translating the Bible into a language where it has not yet been translated. And for $38, you could support someone and translate a verse of the Bible, which got me thinking. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he uses these long run-on sentences. And if I'm going to pay for a verse, like I want it to be one of his verses, I think. Because like Jesus swept, that's more like a $20 verse. I want like a big verse. You know what I'm saying? But you don't get to pick the verse. But you get to think about this for $38. You can translate the Bible into uh, the language of someone who does not yet have it. How incredible is that? And then on the back is one of my favorites, Poker for Presents. Poker for Presents, where we partner with COTS. Uh, we have a huge Texas Hold'em tournament in here, uh, and all of the money goes to sponsoring families through COTS, the Committee on the Shelterless here in Petaluma, and that might be something you want to do. It is very, very fun. I've played multiple years. I have never won, but I did make it to the final table once, once, because people felt sorry for me, I'm pretty sure. So uh, I just want to encourage you, look at that. This is just these are just ways to practice generosity this year. So I want to encourage you to consider that. Um, and hey, I, I just thought I'd bring this out today. Uh, sometimes you guys joke with me that I don't really use a Bible on stage. Like, what's your deal, Kevin? I want you to know I've got like 15 Bibles on here. But just for those of you who are like, where's your Bible? I brought out like a Bible today, okay? Like this is my Bible. Like if, because if at the end of today you think, I don't know if he believes in the Bible. I want you to know. I do, in fact, believe in the Bible. I read the Bible. And if the word is, is the, the sword, the sword of God, this is like a saber. Look at this Bible. This is fantastic. From the 1800s, someone donated this to our church. Isn't that cool? It sits in my office now. I'm going to hurt my other hand. I'm going to need two braces after that. Look at that. That is fantastic. Look at that Bible. We're going to be talking about the Bible today. So I wanted to bring out my Bible today as a good that's a good Bible. You think you're—I feel like, feel like Crocodile Dundee. You call that a Bible? This is a Bible. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that's good. But we're starting a brand new series today called—that was so funny—called uh, I Believe in God, But, But, I Believe in God, But. And we're starting this series because I was doing some research and found that uh, today, across America, 25% of people who used to affiliate as Christians are now affiliating in a different category. 25% of Americans, and that jumps up to 35% when you go to the generation just below me, to millennials. 25% of Americans and 35% of millennials 
would say, I, I used to classify myself a Christian, but now I'm something different. Now I am a, a non-affiliated, is what they call themselves. A nun. I am a nun. I used to be a Christian, and now I, I ain't none of it. And here's why. They would say this. I'm not an atheist. I'm not an atheist. By that I mean, I don't believe that there is no God or gods or deities. They, they wouldn't like throw out faith altogether. But 25% of Americans who used to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, would say this. I believe in God, but I'm not so sure about Jesus. Or, I believe in God, but I don't like having to check my brain at the door when it comes to things like the creation and origins of the world. I believe in God, but what about all that stuff in the Bible about genocide? What do I do with that? I believe in God, but what about the fact that when I read the Bible, it seems a little bit sexist? I believe in God, but there's something that's pulling me away. And so what I want to do in this series is I want to talk about our butts. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate that. Because, <laughs> because you might be sitting here and thinking, not me. I don't have those questions. I believe in God, period. Awesome. This series is not for you. This series is for the one in four people who live around you who say, I used to believe in God, but this series is for your kids who may come home in a couple years and say, I heard this thing in science class about evolution, and I believe in God, but how do we put those together? This series is all about dealing with the butts in the chairs, because the butts in these chairs are causing many of us to walk away from God, needlessly, needlessly. So what we're going to do today is, we're going to talk about the, and I want to be very specific, the essential part of our faith. The essential. So that we can then talk about the non-essentials for the rest of this series. Because I'm convinced that the reason people are walking away from God is because we have inverted the two. We have taken the non-essentials, the buts, and we have put them above the essential piece of the Christian faith. And when we get these two backwards, when we make the essential piece of the Christian faith a secondary and the non-essential things of the Christian faith primary, we read the Bible and we get things that we don't fully understand or like or agree with, and we walk away from God because of our butts. And what I want to do today is talk about what is the essential part of our faith so that we can have the freedom to disagree about the non-essential parts of our faith so that we can have the freedom to ask questions about the Bible, honest, actual, intellectual questions about the Bible without feeling like we are somehow betraying God in the process. Because if we don't get the essential in the right place, and I don't know about you, but I think we're probably going to have this sneaking feeling that goes something like this. We can't actually ask that question because asking that question betrays God. So I want to talk about the essential. And to do it, I want to have you finish a song for me that if you grew up in Sunday school, you'll know this song. So I'm going to have you finish it. So just get ready. Practice your singing voice if you have to. Good. Jesus loves me, this I know. For, what, 
How do you know Jesus loves you? interesting. That, that is where our trouble began. Here's what I mean by that. Now, I'm just going to say something right now. If you don't know me, you will walk out of here thinking I am a heretic. But listen, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, okay? This, this is, like, I want you to know. I want you, this is, this is, this book, this book is like, I'll, I'll challenge you. Other than Pastor Ron, I'll challenge you to a read-off of this book. He would beat me hands down. I think he's memorized the Bible in at least three different translations, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Including the new Ron translation, which he uses sometimes <laughs> at staff meeting. Here's what I mean by that. If we believe Jesus loves us primarily because the Bible tells us that he does, then what we're saying is this. As the Bible goes, so goes our faith. You can say it this way. If the Bible is the foundational point of our faith, if the Bible is the main thing, if the Bible is the essential of our faith, then as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. And this is the misunderstanding that is causing Jesus' followers, to needlessly walk away from God. Because if I believe Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so, and then I get into a biology class in college, and I find out that there is reason to believe that maybe God created the world using an evolutionary process, but I was always told in Sunday school that that is not the way that it happened. And all of a sudden, this thing that I, I thought about what the Bible tells me is wrong. And if, if that's wrong, then maybe... It's wrong to say that, that Jesus actually loves me. Or how about this? If I find out that the world isn't 6,000 years old, like maybe I was taught, but maybe it's more like 14 and a half billion years old. If I get into school or I read an article or I hop on the, the internet and find out that maybe there's not archaeological evidence for a global flood, maybe it was more of a regional flood, and, and I start to ask, well, how did Noah get all those animals onto that boat two by two? Like, how did that happen? I can't even get my kids to walk into church two by two. <laughs> then all of a sudden we think, oh, no. If I cannot defend everything in the B-I-B-L-E, then maybe I can't trust anything in the Bible. If I can't defend the flood or creation, if that's a sham, then maybe God is a sham. And maybe Jesus doesn't love me because if the Bible tells me so, but the Bible also tells me other things that I'm starting to ask questions about, then oh my gosh, if I actually ask that question, what if it leads me to a place where I can no longer believe in God? And this is why we're walking away from faith needlessly. Because we have not made the main thing the main thing. And therefore, secondary things are starting to crowd and convolute and make us nervous. So what I want to do today is um, I, I want to talk about why I believe Jesus loves you. Why I believe Jesus loves me. And it's not because the Bible tells me so. It's actually much, much deeper than that, much richer than that, much sturdier than that. Now, I will say this again, and I'll say it to you if you email me. I believe that the Bible is the inspired and when rightly understood, completely accurate, without error, word of God. 
I believe that the Bible is the book that God used to reveal himself to me. And this is the thing that I use to lead my life, my family, and our church. So in case you're wondering, I just want to say that. And I've got it written uh, in email. I'll just forward it over to you. That's what I believe. But what I want to talk about today is, is not leaving a childlike faith, but is maybe asking some questions about a childish faith that we learned on the flannel graph in school. And in order to talk about what I believe is the reason why Jesus loves you and why Jesus loves me, I'm actually going to give us a history lesson. In this series, we're going to dig into the Bible, but today we're going to do more of a a history lesson. Because the Bible, the Bible is not the reason that God loves you any more than your birth certificate is the reason that you exist. The Bible documents that God loves you, just like your birth certificate documents that you exist. But if you lost your birth certificate tomorrow, would you cease to exist as a person? No. And if for some reason this was taken away from us tomorrow, would God cease to exist? And the answer is no. But in order to do that, we have to do a history lesson. So some of you will enjoy this very much. Others of you, this will be a lot of information for one Sunday. So if that's you, don't try to write everything down. Don't try to to remember everything. Just maybe listen. Maybe today's the day where you put your notes aside and just kind of listen as we walk through history from Jesus' birth through the first, I don't know, 400 years, 500 years after his life. So we're going to start with Jesus' birth. Jesus was born around 2 or 3 BC, which is interesting because that means that Jesus was born 2 or 3 years before Jesus was born. Here's why. Here's why. A few hundred years after Jesus was born, we switched from a Julian calendar to a Gregorian calendar. And when we switched it over and, and Jesus' birth became the centerpiece, some of the dates were just a little bit altered in the process. Now, again, that does not point to this being inaccurate. That points to Jesus being a historical figure that shaped history. So Jesus was born in 2 or 3 BC. That's when he was born. He died around 30 AD. That's when he was crucified, nailed to a cross. Roman historians have documented it. Jewish historians have documented it. Christian historians have documented it. He was crucified, nailed to a cross. Three days later, he rose again. He was seen by hundreds of people. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. A small band of Jesus followers, just a few dozen of them, went up for a couple months, and they were praying together, waiting for God. God's Spirit came down on them about two months later, and the church was launched. And here's how it was launched. This small group of Christians, a few dozen Christians, or God, Jesus followers, at this point they were just known as the way, the way of God. This small group of a few dozen people were praying. God's Spirit came to them. They went out into the streets, and here's what they said. You killed him. He rose again. Say you're sorry. That's what they said. You killed him. Talking to all people. He rose again. We saw him, they said. Now say you're sorry. The word is repent. Change your thinking. Change your heart and follow God. And here's the thing. Thousands of people repented on that day. Somewhere upwards of 3,000 people changed their way of viewing life changed their view of God based on the fact that Jesus lived, he died, he rose, he was seen, and they launched the church. Fast forward 40 years after the launch of the church. Emperor Vespasian, remember the Romans are ruling the ancient world. They are the biggest superpower the world has ever known. 
The Romans are ruling the ancient world. The Jewish people are revolting against them. Vespasian, the Roman Empire, is going towards Jerusalem, sacking cities, sacking villages. All the Jewish people are running to Jerusalem. That is their stronghold because Jerusalem has this big wall around it. They're fleeing to Jerusalem. Vespasian traps all these Jews inside the walls of Jerusalem. And then he leaves his son Titus in charge, and he goes back to Rome. And Titus begins crucifying. He actually built his own wall around the Jewish wall at Jerusalem. He built his own wall, trapping the people inside. Begins crucifying Jews all around the wall. Day after day after day, thousands of Jews are crucified on the outer wall in view of the people who were trapped in Side. And on August 6th, AD 70, the walls of Jerusalem were breached. The temple is burned to the ground, and the temple was the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. The temple in Jerusalem is burned to the ground and destroyed, and thousands of Jewish people are enslaved. Now, let me ask you a question. Just put a pin in that for a second. Let me ask you a question. If you know your New Testament of the Bible, let me ask you this. This was the major, uh, like, like the major moment for the Jewish people when their temple was destroyed. Why is it not documented anywhere in the New Testament of the Bible? Remember, the New Testament was written to Jewish people primarily. Why is it, why is it that a major Jewish event where thousands are killed, where they're their city center, the place where God dwelled is destroyed, where thousands are sent into slavery. Why is it not documented anywhere in the pages of the New Testament? A collection of letters that was written primarily to Jewish people. The only logical answer is this. At the time the New Testament letters were written, the temple had not yet been destroyed. Here's why that's so important. It takes 70 to 80 years for a generation to die off and a myth to develop. It takes 70 to 80 years for a generation to die off and history to be rewritten. And in the time that the letters of the New Testament were written, the people who saw Jesus alive were still alive. Which means that if these letters were false, someone would have said, no, he didn't rise again. We took his body away and burned it. He didn't He didn't raise from the dead. Here's his body right here. But no one said it. Why? Because the New New Testament is documenting something that historically happened. It's not creating myth. It's not creating story. The New Testament and specifically the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are documenting historically the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, a man from Nazareth, who claimed to be the Son of God. And it documents the hundreds of people who then saw him. If you want to put this in your notes, um, most serious scholarship of the New Testament says that the New Testament was written between 49 and 69 AD. Remember, Jesus was 2 to 3 B.C., through 30 AD, 49 to 69, and it takes 70 to 80 years for a myth to develop. Now again, we're walking towards the main thing, and how do we know Jesus loves us? And I would say it's deeper than because 
this book tells me it does. The gospel writers are so intent on, on telling us that this is fact, that this is history, that this is not a myth or a story that's made up, that they actually pin themselves in to certain time periods. It's like they're saying, fact check me. You don't believe this is true? Check. I mean, notice the way that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, notice the way he writes it in Luke chapter 3. He tells you exactly when these things are taking place. He says it's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and uh, Trachonitis, Lysanias of Abilene. This was during the priesthood of, and he gives now Jewish history to the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Luke is saying this. He's saying, fact check me. Fact check me. This isn't a myth. I didn't make this up. This isn't a story. This really happened. This is when it happened. Go back to the annals. Go back, look in history. The Romans documented everything. Check it out. And I want to say this because we're going to be talking about the Bible. How do we understand what God is writing in here? I want to say this. You may have heard people say, yeah, but, yeah, but. The Bible's got a lot of mistakes in it. You might have heard that. I want to tell you something, and this is why I do believe in the B-I-B-L-E, even though it's not the foundation of my faith or the essence of my faith. This book, the Bible, has been, it's like, it's like an anomaly in ancient literature. It has been written and copied more times than any other book in ancient literature because the people who read the history of Jesus found him so compelling that they had to translate it, that they had to write it. In fact, this Bible was translated, the original manuscript was translated into 5,600 copies in the original language. 5,600 copies. Now let me give you some context. Homer's Iliad was, transla- was, was copied 643 times. And that's the next closest when it comes to ancient documents. And no one would say, the Iliad, I don't know. There's some big discrepancy. No, it, it is a historical document. The Bible, specifically the New Testament, 5,600 copies, 99.5% accuracy. It was translated in, in other languages 19,000 more times. So we're talking about 24,600 ancient documents of this. And people will say, yeah, but there's discrepancies. And I would say this. Anytime you, trans- you not translate, but you, you um, transcribe something that many times, you're going to smudge the ink sometimes. You're going to smudge the ink. So there are minor discrepancies because the way that the Hebrew language is written, there are a number of lines, and, and there are minor discrepancies based on the way a line is shaped. And anytime they are, your Bible, if you have a good study Bible, your Bible will say, there's a small variance here, not found in the earliest manuscripts. This may have been changed because they're saying, we want to be authentic about this, and there are no major discrepancies. It's not like one ancient manuscript says Jesus was crucified on a cross, and another ancient manuscript says Jesus died because he fell off a ladder hanging Christmas lights. It did not, it did not, <laughs> just, just to clarify, in case you were nervous. No, these are small discrepancies. All right, sorry, I was, okay, I'm going to get off my, but listen, you can trust this book. That's all I mean to say. You can trust this book. You can trust this book. It's an incredible book. Let's fast forward to 312 AD. 312 AD, uh, you can look at that, write it down because I know you want to. You're freaking out right now, and then I'm going to tell you something. 
In 312 AD, Constantine defeated two other potential emperors and became the supreme emperor of Rome. He was like the man. Between AD 30 and AD 312, Christianity had grown and gained influence between Jesus' death and this time when Constantine became emperor. This was the time, by the way, when Christianity was outlawed in the Roman Empire. This was the persecution time. This was the time when Christians were fed to lions in the Colosseum. This was the time when they did these things called Roman candles, where they would line the, Rome, the roads that go into Rome. They would line them with crucified Christians and light them on fire. And they would light the way to Rome. They were Roman candles. This is the persecution time, and this is probably the greatest growth that the movement of Jesus had ever experienced. In fact, Constantine's mother became a Christ follower when Christianity was outlawed in the Roman Empire. And so when when Constantine became the supreme emperor of Rome, he thought to himself, I need to figure out a religion that can unify the empire. And some will argue that he didn't actually have a true conversion experience. I think that may be true. Because what Constantine was doing was he said, I need to figure out what religion, because the Romans had this pantheon of gods, what religion are most of the people in the empire believing and following right now? And you know which religion he settled on? Christianity. Christianity. Here's the point. Before the Old and New Testament were combined into what we know as the Bible, Christianity had already replaced the pantheon of Roman, barbarian, and most Egyptian gods as the state religion of the Roman Empire. Constantine was this shrewd leader who knew that in order to unify an empire, he had to find the one common religion that was taking the empire by storm. And which one was it? Christianity. And this was before the people in the ancient Roman Empire had the B-I-B-L-E to tell them that Jesus loved them. How did it happen? How did it happen? What was it that caused Christianity to get out of the first century intact amidst persecution? What was it? There's only one thing. It is a risen Savior, seen by people, testified by hundreds. A history that was written down in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that documents, that documents a world-changing event. If you and I could go back in time and talk to Peter or James or John, some of the early followers of Jesus who walked with him, and we said to him, hey, did you know that there might not be archaeological evidence of a global flood? Peter would say to you, I don't know about all that. Here's what I know. I walked with Jesus. He claimed to be the Son of God. He predicted his own death. I watched him crucified and buried. A few days later, I was in hiding. Some ladies knocked on my door and said, the tomb is empty. I ran to the tomb. I got beat by this upstart John who was faster than me. I ran to the tomb. I looked inside. It was empty. I assumed someone had stolen his body because, to the best of my knowledge, people don't raise from the dead. This is Peter telling. And he said, you know what I did? I went back to becoming a fisherman. That's what I knew how to do. I thought this whole Jesus movement was over. I went back and started fishing. One day I was on the beach. I saw this guy. He told me where to fish. I caught a bunch of fish. I thought, that's miraculous. I went to the shore. It was Jesus alive. And we ate breakfast together. 
That's why I believe Jesus loves me. Because Peter would say this, anybody who can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'm going to go with what they say. That's what, Jesus, that's what Peter would say. He would say, I don't know. I don't know, about, I don't know about how exactly creation worked. I don't know exactly about the flood. I don't know exactly about you know, all the stuff about women and men. I don't know all that. Here's what I know. I walked with Jesus. I watched him die. He was buried. A few days later, we had breakfast together. And Jesus said to me that he was going to die to create space for me to experience the freedom and forgiveness of God for my sin, which had separated us. And Jesus said to me that God is like a heavenly father who is searching out his children. And Jesus said to me that I was going to be filled with God's spirit who lived in me, who led me to truth, who guided me on this journey and empowered me. And Jesus said to me, I was going to get to be part of this crazy movement called the church that would love God and love other people. And Jesus said to me that someday when I died, I would find him in heaven and he would have space for me there. I don't know about all that, but here's what I know to be essential. Jesus lived, died, and he rose again. And this is where the church just erupts into applause because we're so excited. Listen, listen. Woo. The, come to next service and I will. The essential of the Christian faith is not the Bible. I know, don't, okay, don't, you, listen, listen. Protect me, Lord. Okay, I'm, the Bible tells us the story of God. The Bible, when rightly understood, leads us to right relationship with God. But the Bible is not the centerpiece of our faith. The essential part of the Christian faith is and will always be and has always been Jesus' death and resurrection. Period. This is why I can say to you, oh, do you enjoy such and such a church down the street? Oh, we have some disagreements about some other things about faith, but I can wholeheartedly affirm that church to you because we believe in the essential part of the Christian faith. And nothing, nothing can shake the reality of the historical event that happened that the New Testament documents. Nothing can shake that reality. So, you can ask questions about some non-essential parts of our faith. Because listen, does that mean that the Bible's not important? Absolutely not. I don't know how many times you've heard me say, 10 to 15 minutes a day in God's word could change your life. The Bible is God's revealed word to us. The Bible shows us God. The Bible teaches us how to live in right relationship with God. The Bible is one of the greatest gifts given to humanity. I love the Bible. I want our church to immerse ourselves in the Bible. But I want our church to be able to ask honest questions about the things in the Bible without feeling like we're somehow betraying God in the process. Our teaching team, and I'm so thankful I'm going to be one of three people teaching in this series, and I'm going to teach less than half of the series. We've got a teaching team that's going to be partnering with us in this series, and I'm so thankful that we're going to do our best to answer your butts. We're going to do our best to... to nope, not going to say that. We're going to do our best to dig into the Bible, not to dig into your butts. That's what we're not going to do. But I couldn't help myself. 
But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Just track with me for a second. I'm sorry. That was my fault. My fault. A thousand points of light. Here's the thing. You might walk away from this series with more questions than answers. You might. You might walk away from this series saying they did a lousy job answering that question and I still don't buy it. And I want to say to you, that is okay. Because we believe in the essential of our faith. And then we can ask questions. We can disagree. We can have conversation about the non-essentials of our faith. Ultimately, what we believe about the Bible is flavored by what we believe about Jesus, not the other way around. So when Jesus talks in the Bible, we lean in because of what we believe about him. I guess I close by saying it this way. Jesus loves me, this I know, because he died and rose again to tell me so. That's why Jesus loves me. Now let me ask you a question. Have you experienced the essential? Put your butts aside for a second. Put your questions aside for a second. Put all the smoke screens and all the walls that you've been like digging into aside for a second. And let me ask you, have you answered the essential question of the faith, which is this, do I believe that Jesus, who was documented in ancient history, lived, died, and rose again, so that I could walk with my heavenly Father. Do you believe that? If you've never embraced that reality, then you've missed the essential. I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to give you a chance, if you're ready, to embrace the essential part of your faith. We'll work out the small stuff later. We'll work out the details later. Remember, Jesus said there's only two great commands. Love God, love your neighbor. All the other stuff is the way we work it out. Do you love God? Have you accepted that? reality. If you haven't, I'm going to pray right now and give you a chance to do that. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you, God, that you reveal yourself to us in Jesus Christ. That there is a uniqueness and a diversity in this room. There is a uniqueness and a diversity in the expression of Christian churches around this city and around this country. And thank you, God, that we can be unified by the essential part of our faith, which is our, our understanding of your life, death, and resurrection. Thank you for that. Would you give us the courage, even as we experience the freedom, to ask questions about our smaller, non-essential pieces in light of understanding the reality of the essential? And if you're here today and you're ready to commit your life to God, to embrace the essential part of the Christian faith, you can say this. Just say, Lord Jesus, I want to walk in relationship with you because I believe that you gave your life for me and that you rose again, conquering the power of sin and death forever. So would you fill me with your Holy Spirit and forgive me of my sin and show me how to walk with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.